Borg Warner is leading the industry charge to e-mobility with estimated e-product sales in excess of $10 billion by 2027. They're well on their way to becoming a market leader in electric vehicle propulsion. To learn more, visit BorgWarner.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. Self-driving vehicles have first and foremost called San Francisco home, but there's another place where robo-taxis are becoming common. Waymo, Cruise, Volkswagen have, to varying degrees, all set up shop in Austin, Texas. And on the trucking side of autonomy, companies like Aurora, Kodiak Robotics, and Gaddick are testing and preparing for commercial operations in Texas. Dallas is a hub that interstates 20, 30, 35, 45 run through. And a little further south, I-10 crosses the state and is the key freight corridor that runs coast to coast across the southern United States. Texas is the key market for traditional automakers selling profitable pickup trucks, and it's the place where the power grid failed during a fierce winter storm that posed stark challenges for EV owners. You see where I'm going with all this. The Lone Star State is at the heart of so many transportation technology advances. And here to help sort through how that potential is being tested and harnessed at the ground level is Greg Winfrey. Greg is the director of the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. He also serves on the U.S. Department of Transportation's Advisory Committee on Transportation Equity, and he's a member of the National GPS Advisory Board. We're going to talk about the potential and pain points for all of the above today. Let's get to it. I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Greg Winfrey. Greg, thanks for making the time to do the podcast today, and welcome back to the Shift Podcast. Thanks so much, Pete. Always a great pleasure. I enjoy the relationship we've built over the years. Likewise. Uh, and I, I appreciated the chance to be on the Thinking Transportation podcast uh, last year. And if I do kind of take this back, it is crazy how much time flies because I looked this up earlier. Uh, your first appearance on the Shift Podcast was episode number six. Uh, on May 27th, 2019, uh, oh, back really? when there's no such thing as the pandemic, uh, autonomous vehicles were at probably the peak of the hype cycle. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, electrification was kind of this thing that was maybe sort of eh, eventually off of the distance and, yeah. and things have clearly changed. You know, it's amazing how much progress is now packed into a much shorter period of time. If you, you know, if you look at, you know the, the history of technology on a continuum. The the technological leaps were eons at first, and then centuries, and then decades, and 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 now it's down to it seems like nanoseconds. You know, or certainly on a daily basis, there's something new and monumental coming out in the innovation technology space. So it keeps it innovating, keeps it keeps it exciting uh, or energizing, I should say. Not well, actually, innovating and energizing. But um, yeah, it keeps it fresh. And uh, I think that's what's drawn a lot of people into this space. For sure. You know, one thing that I think has changed uh, in the past four years is we were probably just talking about San Francisco in terms of autonomous vehicles four years ago. And clearly San Francisco is still at the forefront today and kind of in the headlines every day. But it's not the only place. Uh, Austin, Texas, has, which is just down the road from you by maybe an hour or two, clearly a hotspot for robo-taxi te testing and commercial deployments. Uh, and beyond, Texas has become the place for self-driving truck testing and planned commercial deployments in the very near future. Um, how did it come to pass, Greg, that Texas is, is loaded with autonomous vehicle technology? That's a great question. It, so our legislature meets uh, on an every other year basis. So when they gather, we call it a biennium. Uh, so a couple of biennia ago, the Senate, um, through legislation, uh, literally uh, said for the world to hear, particularly the innovation world, look, Texas's borders are open for uh, the testing and validation of uh, self-driving uh, vehicles. Um, there is no need to register with the Department of Motor Vehicles, no need to register with the Department of Public Safety. That's our state troopers. 
no need to register with TxDOT. Uh, bring it to this state, test it on our roadways. As long as the vehicle that you're testing uh, meets up on all fours with the uh, on-road requirements of other vehicles of its class, then it is deemed suitable for testing on Texas roadways. So that by far was the most uh, liberal interpretation of what could be done uh, within a state's borders. Um, if you recall at the time, and still, um, California had been a bit more hesitant uh, about that. So a lot of the Silicon Valley think, and uh, you know, the, the uh, original OEM Detroit uh, think, said, "Well, hey, we need to we need to be in Texas if we're going to make the significant leaps." Uh, in developing this technology to bring uh, to to benefit the public. So, yeah, so that's how it got to this state. I mean, the the legislature, uh, the governor's office made uh, a very forward-looking, forward-leaning determination about where Texas would uh, position itself vis-a-vis automated vehicle testing. Something else that's perhaps changed over the years is that AVs have also gotten real. Like, we're not just talking about testing uh, we're seeing real businesses, real commercial deployments, uh, and perhaps real problems with with some of the uh, you know real world scenarios that are taking place. What's your what's your read and vantage point on how autonomous vehicle technology has has evolved? Uh, you were kind of talking earlier about uh, now we're seeing this much more rapid uh, innovation cycle. How are you seeing it on the AV front play out? Well, you know, it's still uh, it's still under development. You know, the the driving environment, as uh, particularly the Silicon Valley uh, innovators that first got involved, it's a lot more dynamic and complex than than meets the eye. Um, so the only real way to um, get to the the billion mile issue is to drive a billion miles. And the only way you find the one in a billion or, you know, one in two billion is to drive two billion miles. So there's no substitute for a, a learning environment uh, in a dynamic real world setting. Um, but how it's done is the question, right? So it's certainly a TTI. We advocate uh, testing in a controlled environment first, right? Perfecting your parameters, perhaps moving it to a uh, semi-controlled or or at least um, better informed uh, public environment, perhaps like a university campus where you can reach all 20, 30, 40, 50,000 uh, folks with information and then, uh, you know, take it out on onto public roadways. So kind of a crawl, walk, um, run approach. Uh, but uh, in many instances, folks just dived right in and went to the run approach and you're seeing some of the challenges in doing that. Uh, I remember very early video, um, and this was the Google car, I believe, and it was driving down a residential street. You might remember this. There was a woman in a motorized wheelchair chasing a duck, right? And they were yes, going down in circles. Yes, yeah, the car stopped. It was trying to figure out what was going on. But I mean, there's there's no way... Um, even in the wildest imagination that a programmer would say, hey, I need to come up with some code in case our vehicles come up on a woman in a motorized wheelchair chasing a duck in a clockwise circle, right? Then would it have been different if it's counterclockwise? I mean, so all of the permutations that are required, there's just no way to imagine that until you get out into this uh, crazy dynamic world of ours and have actual experience. Let me ask you about a recent incident, uh, and it's the one that happened with the cruise robo taxi in San Francisco. Uh, very recently, it's it's obviously very sad where a woman suffered some traumatic injuries after she was first hit by a human driven car and then then hit by the cruise robo taxi that came you know came to a stop atop of her. Uh, in the AV world, at least, there's an interesting discussion about this particular collision and. There's some people who say obviously nothing could have been done, that the uh, robo-taxi did all it could in this was essentially a matter of physics. Um, but on the other hand, there's any number of types of crashes that autonomous cars are supposed to save us from, to prevent from happening in the first place. Um, what what do you make of this particular incident? You know, there's a, there's a lot that's packed into... Uh, what occurred uh, in San Francisco. 
so the first thing I'll say is, uh, and as you stated at the outset, I want to send my um, uh, you know thoughts and prayers out for that woman so that she has a full uh, recovery. Um, but there's a lot to unpack. Uh, it wasn't clear from the reports I read whether or not she was walking against the light or jaywalking, right? Um, the, the description of how it occurred, she was coming across the street. She may have been caught in the middle and the light changed, but um, issue one is she was hit by a human driver, um, bounced off of the human-driven vehicle's windshield and was tossed in front of the automated vehicle, which by all accounts, um, you know, applied the emergency braking as, as forcefully as it could. But as you said, physics being physics, it couldn't stop in time and wound up rolling uh, over the woman. Um, and the human driver is unfortunately, we know, uh, happens all too frequently, left the scene. Um, so the first thing is this crash was caused by human conduct. But what does the media call it? The media calls it uh, a self-driving vehicle accident or crash. Um, so I'm a motorcyclist. I'm very sensitive to that because motorcycle um, crashes are always identified as there was a motorcycle crash on, on X highway. Well, I can guarantee you as a motorcyclist, we're not going out looking for these conflicts so that we can place our uh, barely protected you know, bodies in the pathway of a four to 9,000 or more pound, you know, death missile on our roadways, right? So it's not a motorcycle crash. The The motorcyclist was involved, but uh, we need to rethink how we identify these things. So by the same token, calling it a self-driving vehicle accident or crash is completely erroneous because what the vehicle did is what you would expect from a an experienced human driver. It tried to stop. It didn't have time to take evasive maneuvers. The woman probably came out of the air and then landed in front of it and got rolled over. So there's nothing that a human driver would have done um, that would have made that situation uh, any less severe than it, than it was. The final thing I would say, though, another confounding factor, because the vehicle did sit atop the woman for a few minutes, uh, and this may be a matter of minutia at this point, but electrified vehicles are on average a thousand pounds heavier than uh, the same vehicle with an internal combustion motor, right? And it's a lower center of gravity. Um, with this skateboard platform, more often than not, the bottom is flat, right? So you don't have any gaps where maybe, you know, parts of your body can find some relief until it's pulled off of you. It's just a, a flat, heavy thing laying on you. So um, with the Without the adequate science or, or research that's been out there to study that effect, I just put it out there is perhaps something else that's different about that altercation than uh, had it occurred, uh, you know, 20 years ago. That is interesting to think about because I have heard generally that, you know, EVs weigh more and that's mm -hmm. ultimately going to be bad for pedestrians, but I hadn't thought about the additional complication of with that flat bottom there's no there's nowhere for for a body to find relief as you put it yeah yeah you know by the same token at tti uh we're starting to wrap our minds and have conversations with state dot's about um follow-on testing uh for the mash standards that's the manual on you know assessing safety uh, hardware uh, on our roadways, guardrails, et cetera. Um, and there was just a major rewrite for internal combustion vehicles principally. But now with these lower center of gravity uh, skateboard uh, chassis vehicles, what does that look like for equipment that's meant to, uh, you know, lessen the severity of crashes from internal combustion vehicles? Are they going to, uh, you know, snowplow under guardrails and cause more injuries or break off signage and poles? You know, are they now going to cut them at a lower point or a sharper point that, that makes them fall on the vehicle, whereas they were designed to go over the vehicle? So all of this hardware that's been developed according to 20th, early 21st century standards needs to be perhaps re-examined with the advent of the dynamics caused by electrified vehicles. 
that's really interesting. I had not thought about that aspect. Greg, let's move back from San Francisco to College Station uh, and back up a second for our listeners who don't know. Tell us more about TTI and Texas A&M and the kind of work that you are doing there. Sure, sure. I'm always uh, thrilled to be able to brag about my my institute. Uh, we're we're 70 plus years old. Originally stood up to be the research and technical support for Texas DOT as they built out uh, the the roadway system across this state. We can honestly say we're involved in all aspects of transportation, uh, and even on the basic and fundamental research side, our partnerships with. Uh, the academics in the uh, A&M College of Engineering, which, by the way, is the largest college of engineering uh, in the world. Uh, we've got a goal of 25,000 engineers by 2025, and we are well on our way. Our, our School of Engineering is larger than many universities. It's just amazing. But the talent there, the depth, uh, the partnerships is what really uh, rounds out what TTI is able to present uh, in uh, the transportation research arena. We're applied research, and what that means is real-world solutions for real-world problems, um, and, and that's what we're known for, and that's how uh, we're engaged. So it's been a tremendous uh, honor for me to have come from USDOT to an experience in Texas at an institute that allowed me to carry on everything that I learned uh, in that, that prior uh, engagement. We've been in all 50 states. We've been in 52 countries over our history. Uh, within the next month, I will need to travel to Saudi Arabia and to uh, uh, Tokyo uh, for, for events. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're world-renowned um, and continue to push the envelope, but uh, we're part of a great community of university researchers uh, with over 120 universities across the country that participate in uh, university transportation research. So it's a great space to be, great place to be. Uh, we're partnered with uh, BCDC, that's the Bush Combat Development Center. So the Army Futures Command has their research initiative uh, side by side with us on our proving grounds. Um, so again, between BCDC, Army Futures Command, and a newly announced Space Institute partnership with uh, NASA at the Johnson Space Center, it's just a tremendous place of opportunity and a tremendous place of great academic thought and great innovation and research thought. So just thrilled to be there. It's interesting to hear that the BCDC is there. One of the trends I've noticed lately, Greg, or maybe it's not a trend so much as it's uh, something coming full circle. It's autonomous vehicle technology in this modern era, at least started with the DARPA challenges 20 something years ago at this point. Uh, but recently, I'm seeing a lot of companies get contracts with with the Defense Department in some way, uh, yeah. be it robotic research or Kodiak Robotics. Uh, so maybe particularly on the trucking side, but not only the trucking side. It seems like uh, really the Defense Department kind of continues to carry the torch in terms of, of funding automated uh, driving technology development. And maybe this is a, yet another example. Absolutely. And, and Army Features Command was very deliberate about that. The first thing they did was combine all of the Army's research capabilities under one uh, four-star general flag officer. That flag officer sits in Austin, but the research community and research campus is with us in Bryan at the Relis campus. But that's exactly when the um, Army Features Command came out with us, said that their goal was that they wanted to work more closely with innovators that they know the capabilities they have in their labs, but they thought they would make uh, better progress and make greater leaps by opening up the aperture and working with the innovation community, with uh, researchers outside of the military to really help them see things differently. I've been lucky enough to visit uh, the campus you mentioned, and it's hard to describe how big the proving ground that you are blessed to have there is i you know i've gotten to see quite a few over the years and you've just got a ton of space uh it's very unique what sort of work are you doing uh on connected on autonomous vehicles at, at the proving ground and what what goes on there yeah no, that's another great question so we've got uh the relis campus is a former army 
Air Corps, uh, World War II era property that was uh, ceded over to Texas A&M in the 60s, probably following the Korean War is my recollection from a historical perspective. Um, so during the entirety of its time in our portfolio, TTI has been there doing crash tests. And that's what we're principally known for. Again, referring back to that MASH handbook, uh, testing the equipment that goes on the side of the roads. And that means running vehicles at highway speeds um, uh, into barriers to see how they respond into breakaway poles, signs, et cetera. Um, makes for the greatest videos on the planet. And when you're there, you can't help but get your, your heart racing when you see how how it's done. And then it impresses the heck out of you by how much science goes into it for these uh, structures that are designed to, to melt into the background. You shouldn't have to realize it's there to protect you until um, the unfortunate incident, incidents uh, where it does. Um, so that's the first thing we're known for. But from a self-driving and connected vehicle perspective, we have a fully instrumented uh, intersection where we can run because it's on one of the uh, runways that we use as our proving ground. We can get vehicles up to high speed uh, or, again, roadway speed uh, to go through the intersection and, and test uh, the ability uh, for you know low latency communications between vehicles and infrastructure, infrastructure vehicles, vehicle to vehicles. We ran a test uh, for Federal Highways Administration uh, again, with the concept of the crawl, walk, and run, we we did a proof of concept for uh, vehicle connectivity and, and again communicating with infrastructure uh, before we moved it uh, on our Relis campus. Before we moved it to a major roadway outside of Houston, it was tremendous success. Federal Highways was thrilled because they hadn't there was no other facility in the country that would allow testing of vehicles at at um, at roadway speeds. So we're, we're thrilled with that. We've got a parallel runway there with uh, where we work closely with uh, members of the academic community, electrical engineers and mechanical engineers that are working on self-driving vehicles. So with that, on that runway, and also having a history of having tested truck platooning, there's a lot that we can do. It's a configurable space. It's over 2,000 acres and probably 2,300 acres now because uh, more property was built uh, where we'll be working with a, a sister agency of ours to develop an urban grid. So it'll be a network of streets where we can test automated vehicles and, and test conflict points, et cetera. Its principal purpose is for the training of first responders, uh, police and fire for dynamic driving. So the ability to use facilities that we can develop on our property and share amongst the research and uh, workforce development community is just tremendous. You got to come back and see us. I I will put it on my uh on my calendar for sure. That was a <laughs> very interesting visit and a great trip. Um you mentioned V2V and V2I. <clears throat> and I feel like there was a point in time where the autonomous vehicle industry thought that they were going to do everything on board the car and that they did not need connected uh, in infrastructure or connection to other vehicles. I feel like that's changed a little bit in recent years. I'm curious if you sense that too. And if there's, if there's recognition that connected and autonomous are indeed intertwined. Yes. Um, and interesting. And I would add EV to that as well, because there's a definite, connectivity, if you will, between uh, the ability to have electrification and the ability to have uh, automated, um, uh, uh, you know, driving as well as uh, connectivity. So all three of those kind of fit in into the same bucket. Um, so back when I was at USDOT in 2014, uh, Google came out with their car and said, hey, it's going to be the smartest thing in the world and we're not going to need this, you know, uh, connected vehicle thing you're working on, our vehicle will be able to figure its its environment out in all instances. And, you know, at DOT, we kind of sat back and said, well, that's interesting, but when connected vehicles become the norm, it's going to be a lonely Google car sitting on an entry ramp waiting for a gap to break in the traffic if no one knows you're there. So 
it started to thaw, um, I would say, within a, a couple of years of that announcement and with the Silicon Valley, um, and I'm not using that pejoratively, but that's kind of the way folks look at the industry. The, the Silicon Valley think the folks who were not traditional mobility or transportation uh, uh, experts, as opposed to the OEMs that have been, been building cars for 100 plus years. So um, the Silicon Valley think uh, had to have a few experiences at the front end that, again, doubled down on exactly how difficult this task was going to be. And that kind of reticence about uh, bringing other sensors into the vehicle started to melt. So now what you'll hear is our vehicle will be smart in a variety of operational constraints, but we're not averse to bringing additional sensors into the vehicle. So they won't say out loud necessarily, um, and this isn't you know all of the manufacturers, but uh, you won't hear them say, oh, I'm an advocate for connected vehicle technology X or Y. They just know that they're gonna need to bring other radios um, and other sensors and communication devices to augment what their self-driving vehicle uh, algorithms can do. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Greg. When we return, we're going to discuss some of the underappreciated concerns with the reliability of our GPS system and what that means for transportation. The global transformation to e-mobility is happening. And within the industry, one product leader is charging forward with a confidence built on 130 years of automotive achievement. That's Borg Warner. Borg Warner has a long track record of bringing innovative mobility solutions to market. And now this know-how is accelerating a global transformation with e-product sales of more than $10 billion expected in 2027. Sound ambitious? Not for Borg Warner. This accelerated shift to electrification is all part of their long-term strategy, one that's been in motion for years. Now they're harnessing this momentum, building on their scale, portfolio, financial strength, and team to lead the way into the future. To help make such major advancements in e-mobility solutions, BorgWarner relies on its cutting-edge technology and electrification expertise. Combined with their real commitment to partnership and collaboration, they're poised for continued success. For BorgWarner, it's all with one objective in mind, creating a cleaner, more energy-efficient world, a sustainable one, where we can all live better, healthier lives. To learn more, visit BorgWarner.com. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to my conversation with Texas A&M Transportation Institute Director, Greg Winfrey. You've mentioned your time at USDOT uh, once or twice. And as part of that, you were responsible for workforce development issues. There's obviously a lot of concern right now from, from the Teamsters in California about self-driving trucks. Uh, there's concern in Detroit right now as the UAW negotiations are going on about how uh, electric vehicles need fewer workers to put put EVs together because there's far fewer parts. Big picture, are we losing uh, some kind of well-paying blue-collar jobs here in this transition to electric and automated? Um, I don't think we're losing, but we're definitely in a in a, an inflection point where um, 
skilled workers will need to figure out where else their skills can be applied. And kind of the way I look at it, um, and, and certain listeners on this this um, podcast or of this podcast will remember, um, when I was a kid, I remember radiator repair shops. That was kind of a big deal, you know, and if you had an issue with your radiator, you took it to the repair shop, they welded back up and put it in and you were on your way. Well, radiators are no longer made out of metal, they're made out of plastic. So what happened to all of the skilled workers that used to repair radiators? Um, you know, there wasn't a, a sit-in or, or um, you know, any other kind of uh, work action. Uh, they They figured out how to take the skills they had and apply it somewhere else. So I think it's going to be the same kind of thing as we see the transition from internal combustion and it won't be a complete transition, but it'll be a reduction uh, as we look at a more democratized usage of propulsion technologies. So we're going to need folks that know how to work on hydrogen vehicles. We're going to need folks that know that know how to work on hybrid vehicles. We're going to need them to work on fully electrified vehicles. So it's going to be a more dynamic um, uh, automotive uh, kind of environment um, for folks to to plug in and keep themselves fresh. So I, I don't see it as a zero sum game where there's just going to be winners and losers. There's going to all of these roles will be absorbed and and repurposed. Some of your other USDOT related work uh, we've talked about the past, but now here in the present, uh, you were very recently appointed by DOT Secretary Pete Buttigieg to serve on. Uh, the USDOT Advisory Committee on Transportation Equity. I feel yes. like you just hinted about some of that a, a little bit, but uh, tell me, like, what what sort of issues are you addressing on that committee now? Well, you know, we had our kickoff meeting, so we're just getting started. We've got a short span of time to get some uh, work product uh, for the department's uh, benefit, uh, but it's a tremendous honor to have been selected uh, by the secretary by the department. Uh, it's one of the soft spots uh, in my career, having had that experience working uh, with the tremendous hardworking civil servants uh, at USDOT. So to be affiliated with them again has been a just been a, been a real joy. Um, but you know, from from where I sit, I think the role I play in being a voice for Texas, uh, the largest state of the lower forty eight for sure, Alaska being greater in landmass. But um, we have tremendous uh, expanses of rural parts of the state. Uh, and rural cuts across, uh, you know, all, all divisions that otherwise uh, are political hot buttons these days. So when I first got to D, when I first got to TTI, I'm sorry, we were working with the Health Sciences Center on a rural um, health uh, moonshot. Um, in our rural communities, we have we have 254 counties in Texas, 25 of which have zero physicians. So that's tremendous expanse to move a an injured or, or ill individual uh, in that golden hour following heart attack, stroke, or trauma, right? So if Paul Paul runs himself over with his tractor, in a county that has no physician, you've got to figure out how to get, you know, him or her um, to a to a trauma center, assuming there's one within striking distance. So that golden hour is the difference between life and death in many instances. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm bringing to the table, having that discussion, focusing on rural mobility equity uh, for a number of reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. These are our citizens, our neighbors, and our constituents. But, you know, also we need to recognize that the majority of our states are, um, or, or the majority of, of representatives from our states are rural. They come from rural or exurban or, or distant suburbs. Uh, you know, the city representatives are not the majority. So if we're going to talk about uh, significant policy advancements to bring these technologies to our roadways, then rural legislators need to see the benefit, you know, and, and otherwise they're they're not going to be inclined to be as enthusiastic or as on board as the citified folks are. So that that's my uh, role and my goal to ensure 
that that rural communities have a seat at the table, have a voice that's being heard, and that their interests are being considered with the generational funding that's out there from the the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, in, Inflation Reduction Act, and here in Texas we have two propositions um, that have funded uh, transportation uh, with generational funding. So that's the equity, making sure that it's just not focused on the cities. Let me ask you about an electric vehicle slice of that. Uh, we hear a lot about issues where EV owners in apartment buildings, or, or maybe they're not owners because they live in an apartment building. They don't have a place to have their own dedicated charger in a in a garage. Um, so it's difficult to get people who are in cities or in multifamily dwellings to to buy EVs. We hear a lot about the NEVI funding for chargers on the interstate. Uh, in all of this, are we are we leaving out people who live in the country in this electrification transition? And is there a fix for that? That's a challenging question and a great question. Uh, the way I see it working right now, the focus on charging is around uh, urban areas, suburbs, uh, and that's where the infrastructure is going in. Excuse me. But part of the reason is because that's where the vehicles are. So it's it's the classic uh, chicken and egg. You know, do you put the chargers in and then you see the vehicles or do you wait for the vehicles and then put in the chargers? So, you know, other than um, the few electrified uh, pickups, you know, the Ford Lightning, the Rivian and then other vehicles, um, not sure about the EV Hummer, how that where, where that's being picked up. That, that That doesn't seem to be a farm vehicle. That's a more of a fun vehicle. Um, but, you know, we're not seeing the penetration of these vehicles yet into the rural communities. So the strategy, it seems to me, needs to be, well, let's make sure our interstates are populated. Uh, people are traveling through rural communities on the interstates. So we need to ensure that uh, charging capability is there and then migrate it outward um, uh, from those kinds of touch points. But, yeah, right now it's it's focused on cities. Uh, it's focused on um, uh, the point-to-point -point driving and not so much the long-distance driving. Um, so a lot, a lot of fits and starts because the other side of the coin is I hear, and I've got a couple of friends who bought electric vehicles that have turned them back in because of the challenges uh, in in having a vehicle on the roadway when you need a charge. Um, in many instances, the charger is broken right or or reading inaccurately so you know you get to a bank of of chargers and there's a, a vehicle parked in one and the person's in the mall shopping and they're and you know over 80 percent which is not a great return on on charge equity and and now that's a spot that no one else can get and the other two are, are broken you know and and so there's a lot of frustration out there right now from the lack of charge infrastructure, but I do see it kind of developing uh, urban first, um, interstates, and then perhaps into rural communities. Anecdotally, Greg, are you seeing many Ford Lightnings or Rivians uh, on the road? In obviously, Texas is the key pickup market and pickups are what provide Detroit with, profitable, with profitability. Yeah. So like these things have to go together. Are you seeing yeah, them on the road? Yeah. From a pickup perspective, I can't say that um, at speed I can discern the difference between a Ford Lightning and a regular F-150. That's intentional. So I can't say for certainty there. I have seen a few Rivians on the road. I see plenty of Teslas, but it depends on where you are. So because I'm all around the state, as I was, you know, suggesting, when I'm in Houston, when I'm in Austin, when I'm in Dallas, you know, it seems like every other car is an electrified vehicle. Um, and then you get out. We're kind of a bit more uh, exurban here in College Station. You don't see as many, right? So there aren't as many chargers as a result. And you know, so there's that cycle. So it's going to take a while for communities like um, exurban uh, Bryan College Station and, and more rural than us 
to be included in that dynamic. I'm energized with Walmart's um, announcement that they want to have charging capabilities and all of their parking lots. Um, so that's that's a big positive. I think we'll start to see it uh, again in the rural side, in the truck stops. That seems to be somewhat more of a um, rural part of the country phenomenon, um, uh, you know, at least on the big interstates. Uh, I want to change gears here for a minute. There's another aspect of transportation that we don't talk too much about, but but is A, vitally important, and B, I think a particular passion uh, project for you, and that is our global positioning system. Um, yes. Give us a 101 level rundown on how GPS works and and how it's important to transportation. Yeah, that's a that's another great question. You know, it's become a foundational utility that literally drives our economy. Uh, it's gotten a special place in the transportation arena uh, for all of the GPS reasons that we know as drivers, from our um, navigation devices to the devices in our phones, location devices that uh, uh, apps use to track you and, and tell you where the next, uh, you know, hot light is coming on at Krispy Kreme. Um, so all of these usages are what uh, GPS has been incorporated into, but it's foundational for self-driving vehicles. It's foundational for ADAS systems, automatic braking and, and, and lane assist, et cetera, that along with other technology suites. But um, it's safe to say that, you know, the movie, The Day After Tomorrow, that environmental blockbuster, if we had a day after tomorrow without GPS, I would rather have the day after tomorrow with the uh, environmental issue than what would happen if GPS suddenly became uh, unavailable. It would be crippling. Um, so it's the kind of thing that we need folks read in on and um, paying attention to because we need as many advocates as as we can get but from a, a top line perspective that's what it does it's not a leprechaun in your phone giving you directions it is significant investment in technology that the u.s government provides free to the entire world greg you are on a national advisory committee related to gps as well uh tell us about the work that's ongoing there to to ensure that these um problems don't develop. Yeah. There are challenges that we've identified at, on the advisory committee, and we've made a recommendation that uh, the U.S. government needs to protect, toughen, and augment. PNT is, is the term overall, positioning, navigation, and timing capabilities. GPS is a PNT system. So what we're recommending is GPS is a high-frequency, low-power signal from space. We want low frequency, high power, which means a terrestrial signal, something like the old Loran that was developed uh, around uh, uh, following World War II that was used to um, help navigational aids on the coast. That was shut down years ago. So now GPS is a single point of failure. Uh, bad actors, nation states, criminality are looking at ways to cripple it. Um, there are nations, I won't call them out specifically, that have active jamming campaigns. Uh, well, there is one uh, nation state on the island, on the peninsula of Korea that literally at the border has jammers pointed into its neighbor that have impacted commercial flights uh, into airports in that nation. There are jammers being used in the Ukrainian conflict. Um, so, you know, we know that... Um, uh, that there are those who seek to benefit from um, situationally crippling GPS. But by the same token, we believe that there are those who have an eye on how can more nefarious activity be done if it's hampered on a broader scale, whether that's cyber, uh, whether that's what we call jamming or spoofing. Jamming, as I mentioned, is the ability to completely block the signal. Spoofing is more pernicious, and that's where you send out a false signal that your navigator gets, and it's giving you the wrong signal, you know? So there have been a couple of instances of, and you would like to think people are brighter than this, but folks have followed spoof signals into lakes. You know, there was one vehicle that drove into the ocean in California, and, you know, so, and it was all because of a spoof signal, and I've seen 
how spoofing works uh, in real time on some test ranges uh, when I was uh, with the federal government. And it's scary because you just have no idea. So knowing that that's out there, knowing that it's a single point of failure, knowing that it's the focus of bad actors is why we're suggesting protect and toughen what we have and then augment it with complementary uh, capabilities that, that take the bullseye off of the back of GPS. All right, Greg, I'm going to wrap this up. We've talked about your uh, work at TTI, uh, what you did at USDOT in the past, uh, the equity committee you're serving on now, uh, you're working on the National Advisory Committee with GPS. There's one aspect that we've not touched on yet, and I want to make sure we hit it. Uh, you mentioned that you are a motorcycle rider and enthusiast, and I believe when you were at DOT, you started a motorcycle club of some sort. So I want to hear about this. Absolutely. So, and yes, I, I've been riding for at least since the early 90s. Um, I always wanted a motorcycle when I was a kid. And, you know, just like most parents, they said, no, you know, you, you'll kill yourself. But I always wanted it. And um, I, I did the proper thing. I took a motorcycle safety foundation course and got my license, learned to ride. Uh, so I've been riding ever since. But when I got to DOT, you know, one of the things I would comment on is Department of Transportation often makes uh, regulations, guidelines, et cetera. And then after they're implemented, they, you know, do the old V8 knock upside the head and say, oh, we forgot to consider motorcycles. So I said to myself, well, there's a community of DOT employees who ride motorcycles. Why don't we bring us all together under one flag and we can have a community of interest of like-minded uh, folks, which is always fun. But more importantly, all of us can be ambassadors for the motorcycling community. So if we hear of something coming up in our respective uh, agencies, whether it's Federal Motor Carrier or FAA, MARAG, whatever, wherever it applies, we would be able to raise our hand and say, well, why don't you hear from uh, the Department of Transportation Motorcycle Safety Gang is what we called it. And our name was the Triskelions. And it sounded pretty wicked and pretty uh, intimidating. But a triskelion is the official name of that uh, circular propeller-like logo that the Department of Transportation uses. Now, interestingly, the symbol for the Isle of Man TT tourist trophy races uh, is a three-legged depiction. It's also a triskelion. So there is not only the um, uh, reference back to the DOT official logo, but one of the first um, a major races for motorcycling was that the Isle of Man uses a triskelion. So that's who we were, the triskelions, the safety gang. And, you know, we would uh, uh, meet on ride to work day, head on out to lunch. But we were also a resource for the department to call upon. Uh, or more importantly, we were the referees that would throw in the yellow flag if we saw something that uh, needed our attention. That's great. I know you've taken a lot of cross-country rides. Uh, do you have a favorite either trip or favorite moment from a trip that stands out as kind of a highlight from your from your travels? Well, you know, when I lived in Arizona, uh, there was a state highway that rode through a part of the state uh, called Marinci, the Marinci Mining District. I actually worked for the mining company at the time that had that mining district. Um, so the road at the time was uh, numbered uh, State Highway 191. It originally was numbered State Highway 666, and people called it the Devil's Highway. And the reason for that was it rode through the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. And I had a, a, one, of the, one of the riders at my old job said, hey, if you're not turning left, you better be turning right, because it's all switchbacks through mountainous terrain with no guardrails, but um, it was a lot of fun, but I came up on a stretch where I had a chance to sit up and stretch my back, and I saw what looked like a teenager on the side of the road in a bear costume. And I was like, well, what? what's that? And uh, Mind you, I'd been riding all day. I'm exhausted from 47 miles of switchbacks. I get a chance to sit up and stretch. And I said, hey, what's that young man doing out here in a bear suit? I was like, that's no bear suit. That's a bear. <laughs> so there was a juvenile black bear on the side of the road. There's literally no one else around. I had about a quarter mile stretch of straight road. 
And I had to ride past this bear because I couldn't, there wasn't, the road wasn't wide enough to make a U-turn. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? So um, what I remembered from my motorcycle training course was they said if a dog or something comes out at you, maintain your speed until you get up to it and then hit the throttle and it throws them off from a timing perspective. I said, well, that's all I got. So um, I got next to the bear and I, he, he heard the motor and, and got spooked and looked to me like he was running back into the woods. So I was like, oh, great. Sigh of relief. I glanced down to my right. The bear was running stride for stride next to me, close enough that I could have kicked it if I had kicked my foot out. And I, and I couldn't speed up because now I had about 200 yards before the next set of switchbacks. So I'm maintaining my speed. And I was like, well, I said, Lord, please just don't let this bear run in front of me. There's no way I could have ever lived it down that, you know, this guy from New York City runs over a bear in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. My friends would have been like, what the heck was he doing? And right when I said that, the bear darted off into the woods and I carried on and brought my tail feathers home. But that was the most memorable part. I did not yeah. even know we were going there, uh, but that is very memorable. That's uh, <laughs> that that cannot be beat. Um, <laughs> perfect place to end, Greg. Thanks so much for being here today and uh, and covering a lot of ground with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime you need me, I'm happy to be uh, be of uh, of assistance and uh, look forward to maintaining my friendship. Likewise. All right. Greg mentioned earlier the autonomous vehicle trying to make sense of the woman on the wheelchair chasing a duck. Uh, I'd like to see how an autonomous vehicle classifies a motorcyclist being chased by a bear. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg. If so, please leave us a review or subscribe to the Shift Podcast at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Texas A&M's Transportation Institute has its own podcast called Thinking Transportation, which I recommend and also uh, think you should seek it out and give it a listen. Uh, That is our episode for today. Thanks again to Greg for his time. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week.